Welcome to Strictly Anime, a podcast for anime reviews and discussions by casuals for casuals. My name is Courtney. And I am Carl. This is episode 59, and we're reviewing My Hero Academia World Heroes Mission. As always, there'll be spoilers throughout this episode, so you've been warned. I kind of almost tripped up there saying that because I was reading it, and it's World Heroes as in plural, possessive form, um, but for some reason, my brain had a brain fart. Doesn't it? Wouldn't it just be pronounced the same way? Yeah, but like I almost tripped up. Like my brain wanted to be like, wait, what? And then I was like, oh, it's World Heroes mission. Yes, plural and possessive. Anyway. World Heroes <laughs> Heroes Heroes is his mission. <laughs> anyway, yes, we are here to talk about the new My Hero Academia movie. Hot off the presses. These are some hot ass opinions here because the, <laughs> hot the, movie, takes. the movie premiered on in the U.S. on Friday, October 29th. And we are here on Sunday, October 31st. Happy Halloween. Happy pilgrims. Halloween. Um, recording our thoughts on this. So, yes, these are truly fresh, fresh opinions. Um, and it's Halloween weekend, and I love Halloween, and I'm excited to talk about this one. Excited, but, like, not excited. Because overall, I'll just get into it. Um, I feel like the movie was a little disappointing. And... Yeah, it to me was um, definitely not at the level that the second My Hero movie was, which was Heroes Rising. Yes, we always get confused about this. I know, Two Heroes um, and Heroes yeah, Rising. Yeah, Two Heroes, Heroes Rising, World Heroes Mission. Um, but yeah, I have pretty much the same sentiments. The movie is good at best, but it's not great. Yeah, and before we get into all of that, um, just to kind of give you a little a little taste of what we're about to discuss, we do want to give a humongous shout out to our newest patron, Emily D. Ooh. Woohoo! Great Halloween treat. Yeah, <laughs> thank you so so much, Emily, for supporting the Strictly series. All the stuff that we do here, um, helping us continue to make great anime content, or at least what we like to think is great anime content, and allowing us to continue sharing our love of anime with the community. Yeah, thank you again, Emily, so much for your support in our world podcaster's mission. Our world podcaster's <laughs> mission. I like that. <laughs> Hopefully we'll be able to grab some stealth suits as well. Yeah. <laughs> that will only be used for five minutes. Yeah, we'll get into that. That's for sure. But yes, thank you so much, Emily. We seriously appreciate you. And if any of you would like to support the show and get access to things like our bonus episodes, the pre-shows, our show schedules, even submit questions for us to answer on our podcast and in our patron-only Q&A, then head over to patreon.com slash Strictly series. So now before we really talk about the movie, let's talk about one of the coolest parts, which was unexpected for me, and that was the little booklet we got at the premiere. So just to clarify, again, we we saw the movie on premiere night, October 29th. I think at like the very first movie time available, which is 7 p.m. And we made sure it was a sub yes. and a dub. Oh my God. Because, not a dub. Because I almost booked dub tickets for the um, Heroes Rising movie. And I'm like scared to death now whenever we book anime movie tickets. It has to be sub. It has to be sub. Um, but yeah, we got to the, the theater and immediately got these cool booklets. And I know you got it in front of you. I don't know if you want to describe what this booklet is. Yeah. Um, so when we got there, I think we had told the ticket vendor or she had asked us which movie we were watching. And we told her it was my hero. And then she reached into this box next to her and just pulled out all these uh Short little manga booklets, which was a nice treat. I didn't know they were handing these out, um, but I read further into them that 
when the movie premiered in Japan, these were actually given to the first one million people to watch the movie. Um, but I think here it had a wider distribution um, just because of the popularity of My Hero here um, stateside. But yeah, it's a companion manga booklet. I think they call it like a bonus manga um, that actually has some input from Kohei Horikoshi, uh, the series creator. Um, and I was actually, I was briefly looking through it earlier. Um, a lot of it is just, you know, ex explanation of, uh, of like a kind of like a synopsis of the My Hero series. Um, it has these character reports of the characters that appear in the movie. Kind of like um, a, a, their character models and stuff from the... Yeah, like the initial concept designs for the, uh, tr the main trio's stealth suits. Um, and I think Horikoshi himself drew these as well or maybe um, someone on his team um, it also shows like character designs for the the new characters that appear in this movie um, which I also think were helped uh, developed by Horikoshi and yeah I think there's also a one-shot manga at the end of the booklet which it serves kind of as a prequel uh, to the heroes and students uh, parting ways at an airport before they take on the world heroes mission and it's titled hawks soothe it's kind of a fun read um it's nothing really consequential like you don't have to read this prequel to understand what's happening in the movie but it's just i think Cory koshi mentioned like he wrote it just as a way to keep his mind creative um when it comes to like his stories about my hero um but yeah i think for People who are watching the movie or planning to watch the movie, um, when you receive this book, you're actually not supposed to read it until afterwards because it does contain spoilers for the movie um, if you read it beforehand. So yeah, and the the employee at the theater was very specific about that with us. So we're like, okay, we're just gonna store it away for now and take a look at it later. I haven't actually really taking a peek at it so I, I plan to to look at it hopefully later tonight or tomorrow but it's cool i mean you don't often get freebies at movies anymore at least i don't think so yeah i mean the last freebie i got was like for avengers endgame they were giving out these posters um i would much rather get a manga book i mean than a poster. marvel marvel <laughs> doesn't give out manga, well no yeah but... i'm just saying like i i know that they're very different types of movies but it's i think it's cooler to get an actual booklet i feel like yeah. there's more effort um, and content that goes into something like that than a poster. And also I can, you can like stash the booklet away versus a poster that will either go up on my wall or go in the garbage probably. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it makes me wish that they had given out something for, um, Mugen Train or Demon Slayer Mugen Train. That would have been cool. Yeah. Um, but if you do plan on watching it, hopefully they'll give out this booklet, um, to you, um, as a, a special gift for watching the movie as well. And yeah, that started off, uh, you know, things on a high, getting a booklet, and then we dove into the movie, and then it kind of fizzled out a little bit for me. And I'm talking pretty harsh here, um, but as I alluded to earlier, I was, just speaking frankly, kind of disappointed in this movie. And I just feel like there's a couple of different reasons that played into this. And let me just clarify, I enjoyed the movie. I had a fun time watching it. I don't regret seeing this i certainly don't regret seeing it in theaters it's always awesome when you can watch an anime movie in theaters um i would definitely recommend any my hero fans go out and see this but is it a must watch 
do you need to be, you know, sitting there for the, what is this movie, like an hour and a half, two hours? Yeah, I think it was about um, an hour and a half, uh, 105 minutes, so an hour plus some change. Yeah, so it's like, do you need to, to watch this movie and sit through it, um, you know, to, to feel like a, a true My Hero fan? No, like it's it's pretty in- inconsequential, um, but I certainly would say it's, it's worth it to watch it at least once, but it will be a one-time watch for me. Um, I just don't see myself wanting to see this movie a second time, unlike... Heroes Rising, I could definitely watch that a second time. I kind of have, am surprised I haven't seen it a second time. I really enjoyed that movie. But this one, just, I don't know. I, I would say between the three My Hero movies, I would have to put this one at number three. I think it is the weakest um, of all of them. Best was still number two. And like I said earlier, um, I pretty much have the same feelings about this movie. It's good, but it's not amazing. And I think part of that is because the question that just kept coming to the front of my mind as we were watching this movie and even in anticipating this movie is that, does any of this matter? And I think part of that is because of us watching the second movie, um, Heroes Rising. And like you said, I loved Heroes Rising. That was a great My Hero movie. But the end, like... Although the climax of that was fantastic and it just opened up so many possibilities for Midoriya and even his relationship with Bakugo, the ending itself left such a sour taste in my mouth that I think it just left my my expectations for World Heroes Mission to be lower. Um, So I kind of just walked in thinking like, like this is really inconsequential to the actual canon of the My Hero series. And, you know, they, they play up the threat in this movie so much. And it, it, it's a credible threat. But, again, knowing what's happening in the show right now with uh, season five that just premiered this this past year, right? Was yeah. It, yeah. Um, and knowing what happens there. But then they try to insert this plot line into that. I, it, I think the series... The, the anime series itself is just downplaying what's happening in this movie. A hundred percent. I completely agree. So for anyone who's, I guess, not not aware, this movie falls within the, within the timeline of season five in the middle of the Endeavor internship arc, which happens in the latter half of the season. And it's just so weird because, yes, this is like, this is a major threat, right? Like, this is a big fucking deal. And not once in season five do they mention it. Mm-hmm. And I, I get, like, it would probably be strange for us to hear something about humor, humorized or whatever. But I think it would be important for them to at least acknowledge that all of this happened in season five in order for this movie to feel more canon. Like, I know you could say technically it's canon. I know you could say that technically all three My Hero movies are canon. But it doesn't feel canon when they don't even acknowledge what has happened. It kind of reminds me of the there's a Star Wars argument about canon where the the movies of Star Wars are they call it G canon like George Lucas canon and everything else they assign another letter like F canon or something and that's pretty much the same case here. Um, they did mention uh, a little bit of the movie's plot in that one throwaway episode in season five the terrible impromptu beach episode yes with uh froppy and um uraraka and uh who's it najire the from the big three yeah um but i think we talked about 
that episode in our season five review is that that episode wasn't even part of the um, actual manga that season five adapted from. So I think that was meant more as, again, a lead in and a tie in to the movie to encourage people to watch the movie. But I think even that episode stylistically and plot wise didn't fit with really anything else um, in that season. It was honestly a terrible episode. Um, like season five was was decent, but that mo- that that episode in particular was just yeah very odd. And even then, the, the uh, I don't know the, the episode focuses on this drug, but there's already this drug that exists in the world of my hero. So I mm-hmm. wouldn't unless you had told me that or if I had read it somewhere, I would never naturally think that that episode is supposed to be a lead in into this movie. Cause I'm like, well, we already know the drug existed. We've, we've seen this shit before. So it just, it, it felt so detached from everything. Like it really felt like a side quest that, you know, Midoriya didn't need to go on an optional side quest that he didn't need to go mm-hmm. on, but he went on anyway. And that makes me wonder, cause you know, the, these students are called to different uh, countries around the world. I wonder if there's any point in the the series canon that kind of uh, contradicts that. Like if, if one of the students mentioned like, oh, I'd love to travel the world. But then in this movie, they already traveled the world. Yeah, it, it'll be <laughs> weird. Um, but kind of going back to the other two movies, this one to me felt like a cash grab versus the other two. Because I don't know, unlike the last two movies, this one – again, didn't have like any real impact or consequence for the main My Hero story. Like the first movie, Two Heroes, dove into All Might's backstory. So that that had more of a tie-in, right? And the second movie explored Midoriya and Bakugo's relationship and allowed a lot of Class 1A to really shine and, and put their skills to use in the real world. But what did we gain from this movie? What was really the tie-in for this movie? I feel like other than the bad Uraraka Beach episode, that there is no tie-in. I guess you could say, oh, well, it's you know the Endeavor internship, but th- they look fucking fine when they come out of that internship in the middle of season five. It's like, I, I would <laughs> never fucking know. They just saved literally the entire world from devastation. I'm about to do some Team Rocket shit here. <laughs> <laughs> and you would think like once they learn about the evolved League of Villains threat, they would have said, like, we already dealt with this shit. Like, first <laughs> with humorized, humorized. Yeah. now, I don't even remember, what's the name of the new? Um, the Paranormal Liberation Front. Yeah, that shit. <laughs> <laughs> like, there, there's just, I don't know, it, it, there's no real tie-in here, and that's why it feels like a cash grab. It just is a, another opportunity to showcase the main three, which I'm fine with. Like, there's nothing wrong with that, um, but... In, in, in just such a way that feels lazy and quick and kind of cheap. Two things there um, to kind of capitalize on. You mentioned that this felt like a cash grab. I also feel like this movie was a rush job because there are instances where the animation was really rough oh and it God, did yeah. not look crisp until the climax where Midoriya faces off against uh uh, Osmosis Jones or Fleck turn. I just kept thinking that um, even watching like the previews and the trailer for this is like Midoriya's fighting Osmosis Jones next. Um, there was a lot of like slapstick and cartoony segments in mm-hmm. there, which like it didn't, it's not out of place in my hair. Like we see that in the regular show, but I guess just the way it's drawn was really off putting. It was um, more like 
they were trying to do what Demon Slayer does. Like Demon Slayer does that stuff, but that's part of their show. Like it, mm-hmm. it works very naturally. Yeah, I thought the same thing here. I was like, this feels Demon Slayer-esque in a bad way. Yeah, and then there are just certain sequences, um, kind of like there's certain chase sequences that it looked like they were storyboard pitches. Like they worked well on paper, but then in execution, it, it just looked off. Like it was just really, again, rushed to be animated um, and it didn't look cleaned up. I, again, like it, it just came out of like the storyboard meeting. So I, I agree with you there. So I would say animation quality, yes, was definitely messy, except for the fight scenes. Um, honestly, the strongest points of this movie were the fight scenes. But those parkour sequence, sequences with the cool kind of long shots, if that's the correct term for it, it was very fluid um, and and just kind of like, you know, spinning around the room almost. It did kind of give me motion sickness, not going to lie. Um, but as cool as those moments were, even then, the animation lacked polish. I think mm-hmm. it's overall, it just lacked polish. And it's a movie that didn't have movie-level animation quality. And it bugs me because the TV show looks better <laughs> than the majority of what I saw in yeah. this movie. Um, so that was very concerning. And I do have to just throw this out there. Was it just me or did this movie end up being nothing like the promo showed us? I felt yeah, like that was my second point, but go on. Oh, okay, yeah. So, so I felt like the trailers and the key visuals basically baited us into thinking this was some sort of espionage, high intensity movie, like something I don't know, James Bond or um, what's that other other one with Matt Damon? The Born Identity. Yeah, <laughs> Jesus Christ, it's Jason Bourne or whatever. <laughs> Jason Bourne is Jesus Christ. <laughs> um, but yeah, I felt like we were baited into thinking that was the type of movie we were gonna get, and it was very much not that. And I think a big case in point is that I think 100% of the promo materials that I saw had the th- the main three in their new stealth suits, but they were only in those stealth suits for a hot fucking minute in the beginning of, of the, the movie. I was pretty bummed about that one because they look awesome, and I was hoping that they would wear them at least for a good portion of the movie. Yeah, like you said, my second point was that we barely got to see the main trio in their stealth suits, despite all this promotional material. And on top of that, I thought this movie was going to really center around the three of them working together. Uh, Again, with two heroes, it was All Might and Midoriya working together in the end, uh, fighting whoever, I don't remember the fucking villain. Um, I don't either. (laughs) Heroes Rising, it's Midori and Bakugo teaming up to face off against, I think his name was Nine, who was kind of like the all-for-one clone or whatever. He was a cool villain. I liked him. Yeah. And then, so that led me to thinking, like, this movie, it's it's the big three. The 1A's big three, I call them, um, to help work together and collaborate to take down this threat. And I remember the, the promotional material specifically said, he will meet the three musketeers. Which is so clever because we've got the whole concept of all for one and one for all. (laughs) Yeah, which is a line taken from The Three Musketeers. And I'm assuming he um, is Flecturn. But they ended up getting separated in the climax. And I don't think they ever directly... Yeah, they never directly fought um, Midoriya... No, sorry. Bakugo and Todoroki never directly fought Flecturn. So it's like... He will meet the Three Musketeers, my ass. This was a Midoriya movie. Uh, It was Mm -hmm. just a Midoriya movie where Bakugo and Todoroki were supporting characters and Class 1A were supporting supporting characters. They were so far removed from everything that 
this honestly was i mean fucking all might made like two cameos the entire movie which it, it makes sense to a certain degree because midoriya in the main show he, he's starting to grow beyond needing all might all the time which is something that all might is struggling with but i don't know like all might had very little significance in this movie um so just it was very much the midoriya show yeah and i started to kind of kind of accept that um as i thought more about this movie because the whole point of my hero academia it, it's kind of like how how i met your mother it's how i met the number one hero and it's how <laughs> how i became the number yeah, one hero yeah i became the um and it's about midoriya's journey um to that point right so if this would be like the final movie in this my hero trilogy i can see it kind of being like midoriya's capstone in this case it's him really learning how to step up to the plate and filling in um, for All Might's shoes as the number one hero. But again, the marketing material did not reflect that at all. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I also felt like this movie didn't feel like a My Hero movie until the very end um, when Midoriya went Super Saiyan again. I don't know what you even call that. Like maybe he 100%... He went plus ultra. Yeah, he went 100% on um, one for all. But the vibes here were very different. They took some risks with this movie, some sensible risks where they were trying something new with this more serious vibe, and I commend them for trying something new, but in this case, it simply didn't work. That's the gamble here, right? Like when you try something new, when you take a risk, there's a chance it won't pan out the way that you hoped, and in this case, it didn't. It didn't pan out the way that they probably envisioned it would. I did really, really, really like the more dark and mature and intense feeling that this movie had versus the regular show. Um, for example, the amount of blood and gore that we got. Yeah, was I thought Bakugo got stabbed like ten times. I mean, Midoriya got stabbed like a hundred yeah, times with those fucking so, lasers and was bleeding yeah. out everywhere. Went to the point where I was like, are are they? Are they dead? And then I realized, <laughs> oh, wait, no, no. They're, they're season five. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think it was great. I think um, I kind of hope that my hero starts to go in this direction because we've mentioned in our season five my hero uh, two-part review that sometimes it just feels like Midori is stuck in this, this spot in his character development where he always is like this newbie with his powers but at mm. some point he's got to own them and he's got to take some some risks and he's got to put himself out there as a hero and this more dark and intense feel i think plays into that like i hope the whole show starts to move into this direction um while not losing its identity of course but moves into a more um, intense direction as the story kind of reaches this climactic point i don't know how many seasons until we get there but i hope this is a taste of where the show might be heading in terms of tone but yeah i think everything else around this sort of atmosphere didn't quite come together for a successful movie yeah i think the movie just played it safe with character development especially with midoriya and i think this is why i find midoriya's character annoying is that he falls into the same kind of holes that he's been in throughout all of my hero so far where it's his like self-doubt um wondering if he'll be able to rise up to the challenge um it, it's more of the same in this one um but i guess the, the nice thing is that you know he realizes that everyone is is trying their best at stopping this threat and that gives him the encouragement to go beyond plus ultra in defeating <laughs> a flag turn but 
again, I, I this movie is just so in, inconsequential to me that um, character development wise, even if Midoriya reached some like epiphany in this movie, it really wouldn't matter in the grander scale of things. Although he did pull off like a lot of moves in here that I, I, I consider it to be like this could serve as a finale to his character, um, much like the ending of uh, Heroes Rising would have served as a grand finale to the series. Um, especially because, again, he uses one for all 100%. I assume. I assume that means it's 100% if he's going, you know, Super Saiyan. Yeah, which, like, he's, I think he's done a couple times in the past, but that it's been at the expense of his own body. Um, whereas now he's able to use it like star platinum and go ora ora all over <laughs> Flecturn. And then he declares um, like All Might's final smash, but adds a tweak to it by saying United States of World Smash. <laughs> yeah. So again, it's like that's the crowning the crowning smash move. Um, and, and we see that in this movie, but we've got... I would assume like four or five more seasons of my hero left until we see uh, Midoriya in his final form. I did take note that there wasn't a lot of music throughout this movie. Either that or the score was just so underwhelming that I didn't even realize that music was playing. I only got hype from the, the music and from the score when the theme song, You Say Run, played at the very end of Midoriya's fight against Flecht because that was beautiful. Yes. That is, okay, let me just say this. Like I said before, it didn't feel like a My Hero movie until the very end. And it, to me, felt like a, a My Hero movie when that song started playing and when Midoriya was about to destroy Flecht. Like, we're talking the last, like, what 15 20 minutes of the movie not even probably less that's when it started to feel like a my hero movie it was just weird but overall i would say that either again the the score was underwhelming and i didn't even notice it or there really wasn't a lot of music and it just felt kind of strange to me i know uh yuki hayashi um the main composer for the series also um did this movie which was as expected um so maybe it's just that his his scores like we've just grown accustomed to because of the series that it's it it doesn't really stick out to us but i was just so overjoyed when they used you say run um at that point because one of my major issues with heroes rising and i think i mentioned this in our movie review is that they didn't use you say run um this very iconic theme for my hero um during that film's climax it was actually a it's the same one it's like the ballad version that they also used for season four's Shie uh, Hasaikai, the overhaul arc, um, where it's the, the vocals over the melody. Um, but I thought for them to use it here, it worked so well for Midoriya. Again, going back to this movie kind of being, making him the focus. I think Yusei Run is more of All Might's theme because we've used, or we've heard it being used um during the fight at when he faced off against uh, the Nomu in the USJ. So for them to thematically use the music for this movie's climax, it's like he or Midoriya stepping up to the plate again as All Might's true successor. So I would say that was one one positive highlight for the movie that I commend them for undertaking. Yeah, I got I got those My Hero feels when that that 
song came on. I think it was very well done. Um, I think it wrapped up that that whole climax beautifully. And I hope we continue to hear you say run because I know Midori will eventually become his own hero. But I think forgetting the roots and the origin of his story and his connection with All Might could be a bit troublesome. I, I want them to continue using the song. Also, it's just a fucking awesome song. Yes. It's a great theme song. I just I, I got so hyped when I heard it. Um, and it did it put a smile on my face um, just because I used this song back when I worked out. <laughs> I need to get back into working <laughs> out. But I would use this song to run on the treadmill. And it just has so many highs and lows that – once you get to the end of the song, like I would put my treadmill on like, uh, like a sprint setting, um, and then just just go all out. And oh man, this song is just—it gives you so many feels. It but really like, does. Like hype feels. I also just want to mention that I, I think in general there were some lazy writing moments, and we'll get into this in a little more detail. But for example, the mass murder accusation. That was kind of lazy to me. Um, how underdeveloped the main villain was to the point where I couldn't even remember his name. I think we left the movie and I was like, what was the villain's name? I don't even know. <laughs> and then uh, the fact that there was no emotional connection established to Rhodey, and, which means I didn't feel much for his siblings or his dad. I'll get into more of that soon. But just these things where I felt like a lot of stuff was either tossed in or thrown away. It really kind of cheapened the story for me. But with that said, I know we've been chatting a lot. Let's let's take a pause here. Let's do uh, the synopsis for the movie. We're going to do things a little bit different than normal because it is a movie and it's kind of tough to kind of talk through things in pieces. So I think you have like a uh, somewhat lengthy but overall synopsis for the entire movie, right? Yeah, so I'm not going to break this one up in acts. Um, I'm just going to go through this synopsis as quickly as we can just so we can catch everyone back up to speed on what the fuck happened in this movie <laughs> so to start my hero academia world heroes mission is a 2021 japanese animated superhero film and the third film based on my hero academia manga series by kohei horikoshi produced by bones the film was directed by kenji nagasaki from a screenplay written by yosuke kuroda in the film Midoriya Izuku and his classmates join the pro heroes around the world for a mission to stop a terrorist plan that will bring an end to humanity. In the beginning, Reverend Osmosis Jones and his eclectic group of radical anti-quirk extremists, Humorize, begin their Sunday service by releasing a chemical bomb in the European region of Othion that mass murders its population of quirk-enhanced individuals as a way to prevent the possibility of the quirk doomsday theory coming to fruition. As the world grows concerned with the cult's impending terrorist threat of eliminating all quirky folk in major global centers, who else do you call to action but the pro-heroes of Nippon Land and their student counterparts? Because apparently no other country has their own set of capable heroes, and the Avengers are probably still exhausted from taking down Thanos. Thanos. <laughs> <laughs> with Endeavor's agency summoned to Otheon, Midoriya gets caught in a conundrum with Rowdy Rody Piper, a two-bit thief who ends up in a classic case switcheroo that gives them possession of super-secret info on how to take down Humorize's bomb threat. To make matters worse, the Otheon Police Department takes a corruption cue from Gotham City PD and intends to hunt the pair down for the quirky-leaked info by framing Midoriya for mass murder. Midoriya and Rowdy Rody Piper go out on the lam and share some bonding time until Bakugo and Todoroki come to their aid. And with only a couple hours to spare, 
they somehow use the quirky leaked info to find Humorize's hidden clubhouse. 1A's Big 3 end up in a too-long-for-its-own-good climax against some of Humorize's big baddies in an attempt to disarm the cult's second round of biological attacks intended to rid the world of the pro-heroes summoned to their locations. Midoriya, the spotlight hog of a hero that he is, ends up facing off against Reverend Osmosis Jones, whose own quirk of reflecting his opponent's attacks proves him to be quite a bitch to battle. Rowdy Rowdy Piper steps in to disarm the bomb himself at the last second with the help of his quirk stand, Pino Grigio, and Midoriya gains a second wind in plus ultra pummeling the bejesus out of Reverend Osmosis Jones until his heart can barely take it no more. The world hero's mission is then accomplished, and Midoriya bids his Otheon accomplice farewell, only to make no mention of him back in the anime arc. Thanks, anime film tropes. All right, so here's what I'm thinking. Let's take it in halves, but it's not really halves because it's like the big first chunk of the movie and then the climax of the movie. But I'm thinking let's talk about everything that happens before the main three reach What's his name again? Flecked? Flecked. So his <laughs> real name is Flecked Turn. Because like Flecked, like Reflect. Yeah. Okay. Which stupid, another stupid name for uh, an anime villain. I think, okay. Kinda I like Marley in Attack on Titan. <laughs> I give credit to Horikoshi or whoever created this character. Like they're they're probably not native English speakers. So I, I could, I see this one, right? You're trying to, it, it, was it a pun? It's not a pun. Is it, it's a play on words? Is that what Maybe, it is? Yeah. Flecked and turn like you turn it against your opponent or whatever I'll, I'll i'll give them this one but um flight yeah so let's talk about everything that happens from the start of the movie up until the main three reach that area where flect is at um for the climax and then we'll talk about the the very long climactic fight um and then the end of the movie so thinking about the quote-unquote first half which is not actually a half it's like the majority of the movie um i just have a, a slew of notes here just some uh, bits and pieces that i was kind of thinking through so we already talked about the stealth suits. Big bummer because they looked fucking awesome, but they only show up for the first like five minutes of the film. Um, I just felt like the whole world heroes mission, when you think about it literally, where everyone's dropping in from the fucking sky and looking so cool, was a completely different tone from the rest of what we got in this first section of the movie. I I don't even know how they were able to successfully put those all together, but they did. Um, and it was just weird to me because the title of the movie is World Heroes Mission, but it barely felt global since the main three were located in one location and it focused on the main three so heavily that moments with anyone from Class 1A kind of felt forced. Don't get me wrong. Again, I, I enjoy that the focus of this movie was on the main three. Sometimes I feel like when they try to focus too heavily on all of Class 1A, it just feels messy. Although they were very successful with doing that in the two Heroes. No, Heroes, heroes Rising. Heroes Rising movie. Sorry, everyone. I'm going to get that mixed up, I think, more often than not. Um, but anyway, so I was fine with them focusing just on the main three. But to stay true to the title of the movie that, um, you know, is literally World Heroes, Heroes Plural Mission, uh, they could have had some bigger tasks for the other 1A members I think that would maybe directly tie into what the main three had to do. Like, for example, instead of just having to secure the bombs throughout the world um, and look for, you know, the humorized leader, what if each country team had a specific responsibility or piece of this larger puzzle that they had to handle? Otherwise, the entire mission fails, right? Like, what if the team out in France had to do X, Y, Z? 
otherwise you know the the whole thing is a bust or the team in japan or whatever like give them all something more significant that plays into what the main three are doing that way it feels like what the rest of class 1a is doing is actually of some importance i think they only chose to make the secondary teams just the searchers for the bomb threat um just to give I get the rest of 1A and the the pro heroes of Japan more of a cameo in this movie. Um and yeah, it's 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 a shame that it's called World Heroes Mission and you really only get maybe 10-15 minutes of screen time for these uh other characters. But I think it makes sense that it's Endeavor's agency since Endeavor is the current number 1 hero at least f- um for Japan for them to take uh take initiative for the the main threat at hand yeah and and that was fine and i do really enjoy the the whole world concept although it did leave a lot of questions for me like for example rody mentions to midoriya that he doesn't have the proper license or proper clearance to fight in a foreign country so it's like how are these to your point earlier with the synopsis how are these japanese heroes sent out to the world instead of the heroes in their own home countries fighting there i get that they're collaborating to a certain degree with these local heroes but why spread your country's heroes out to new countries where they have their own teams of heroes just to try and coordinate with those other heroes instead of keeping your heroes local like why not just call the team in france and say hey here's the location for the humorize building can you guys go check this out Instead, they send all of their own heroes out who apparently don't have licenses to fight in those other countries. Because Japan, uh, Japan is superior in in the hero society, <laughs> much like anime is superior. Is it because um, they have All Might? <laughs> yeah. I think that some characters are mentioned like um, recognizing all, like all Might being recognized globally. Um, and I think it's because of, they have the the World Heroes Association, um, remember that the WHA. Uh, WHA. I think they're the ones that are coordinating this this whole thing, and that's that like uh, what do you call it? That operating not operating the operations room where All Might's uh, located in. Oh, it's, okay. But then why why wouldn't they automatically give them licenses to fight in those other countries? This I would think this was more of a extraordinary circumstance, hmm. right? Because it's a it's a very credible threat um, with a very limited timeline. Um, so I, I, I'm just I'm making up canon. Just right trying now. to rationalize it. <laughs> but no, I, I love the idea of the world piece of it. I just think that they didn't play into that enough. Yeah. Because it wasn't, it wasn't really a global movie. Just because you put characters in different parts of the world doesn't automatically make it a global movie. Um, they could have all been located in one country and it would have felt no different with the way that they were coordinating with each other, those different country teams. But yeah, I think it was really cool. I love the concept here. I love that they were collaborating um, and working together with the local country heroes. Um, we got to even see some of those, like the Egypt hero was Salam. so fucking awesome. He was the star of this <laughs> he movie. He was great. It, he, he like just popped up on screen at one point. I'm like, wait, what the fuck was that? <laughs> <laughs> and he's, you know, he's drawn in like that hieroglyphic style. So he, he sticks out. Um, and I was even in that uh, manga compendium that we received. Um, I'm looking at it right now. It has a kind of a description of of the character himself. Um, his quirk is called Papyrus, which allows him to flatten his body like Papyrus. 
but his weakness is mold in places with high humidity. And it also mentions that nobody has yet seen him from the back. <laughs> so he's, he was a great like comic relief hero for this movie. And I, I just loved his scenes. Like he stole every scene he was in. Yeah, he was great. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I, I just wish there was more played into the, the world piece of it. And they don't really do this often in My Hero. But when you think about All Might's backstory, he actually left Japan for a bit to, I think, either study or like, um, work on his hero experience out in America, mm-hmm. which is why he feels very American, um, looks very American, and Endeavor in the beginning of the show used to call him the American. <laughs> like, where's oh, yeah. the American at, even though he's <laughs> Japanese? But that was cool. I really enjoyed that. I loved the idea of this number one hero in the country of Japan actually taking time in another country to learn and grow and taking influence from that. Like all of his moves are states and cities from the United States. So I was hoping that there would be more of something like that in this movie because we were seeing a global mission, but it wasn't really a global mission at the end of the day. I did like how in the beginning though, um, I guess you could call it like the, the title credit sequence they sort of had this Marvel-like introduction of the Class 1A students and their the pro heroes of the respective internships they were doing. Um, they were all kind of doing like action shots, and then they freeze, and then you get this title card of their names and the countries that they were assigned to. It felt very much like uh, the MCU, how they introduce that title card in the front of their movies um, before it says Marvel Studios. Um, and that kind of made me think like there, there's a sort of finality uh, to this movie that it's intended to be the last of this trilogy. Um, so I, I just thought that was a nice visual touch. Yeah, I like that they, they chose that concept for introducing the locations for each, introducing the teams and then the location for each of those teams. Um, I thought that was, it was, it was different. Let's talk a little bit about Rhodey who Rhodey's hole. <laughs> who who is the uh, one of the main characters of this uh, this movie and I like his character a lot. I think he's fun. He gives me very much like a I don't know, like a Spike Spiegel type of vibe to him. Obviously like nothing quite like Spike, but that mm-hmm. kind of idea of someone who's very carefree, who's got who's really good with like sleight of hand stuff, is somewhat a bit morally conflicted because he's technically a little thief but you know (laughs) he has his reasons for that um and is just a good person at heart and i also like that they kind of took that character type and took it a step further by making his quirk pino who shows his true intentions because he is very much like hiding his true intentions hiding his true feelings throughout the movie but she's there to basically put that all out on the line (laughs) Yeah, she reminded me of like a porg from Star Wars. Yeah, I got that same feeling. <laughs> or I get almost like you could consider Rhodey a stand user, and and this is his stand. <laughs> um, the My Hero manga booklet mentions that the, his actual quirk, quirk name is Soul. Um, ah. So I know they use it as his last name, Rhodey Soul, in the movie. But um, yeah, in that case, uh, Pino acts as his soul, and. You know, m- making that Star Wars reference earlier. Um, did I make a Star Wars reference? Earlier? Yeah, the the Porgs. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, my brain. I'm I'm functioning on like fifty percent of my brain right now. Um, but yeah, just to, to kind of capitalize on that Star Wars reference, I feel like um, Rhodey 
just his character itself in this movie gave me uh kind of ro- like rogue one vibes um where and I, in a way i think to your point where Rhodey feels like a kind of like a spike spiegel to me he kind of reminds me of like a like a han solo he just has that kind of rough around the edges personality is involved in a line of work that's kind of frowned upon if you could call it a line questionable. of questionable yeah questionable um but in terms of rogue one he reminds me a bit of jin erso um who was the main character for rogue one um and she had like this personal connection with someone who um had helped put together the death star in that movie but had grown dissatisfied with what he was getting involved in and that's much like what um Rhodey, his connection with his father in this movie where his father was also connected to the whole humorized drug thing that they were um, dispersing across the world. But then at the end, like he grew dissatisfied with what they were doing. And so he had this kind of like this MacGuffin device, much like the the Death Star plans, right? That that was intended to singularly disarm um, humorize's entire bomb network. Um, And then you have Rhodey at the forefront um, in the climax being the one to kind of put that put a stop to that so it's almost like a full circle situation in that not only that but Rhodey's shoes were a fucking moment i loved his shoes i don't know <laughs> why but they just look so great on him and every time we got any shot of him like running around or anything where his shoes were basically on frame or in frame i was like yes those shoes are absolutely fantastic the he ones rocks, that are like he, he rocks the shit out of them like they're the ones with the big ass bows but they look so good for his character see i thought it was just uh ribbons that were meant to patch up the shoes because he was wearing honestly like, maybe but they look so good because <laughs> like the rest of his outfit is very ragged um i remember he had like patches on his pants and his tie was kind of unkempt and s- stuff like that again to give off that feeling of him being rough around the edges you know what if that is the the case those uh ribbons were there to hold the shoes together he knows how to make his uh, yeah. <laughs> ragged shoes look even better. You know what? Okay, sorry. I just thought about this. You know who else he kind of gives me the same vibes as is Aladdin. Yeah. Like very much an Aladdin type character. Probably more than Spike. I think Aladdin's, Street rat. Yeah, I think Aladdin's a more appropriate um, character comparison here. But either way, Rhodey was really cool. He was so much fun. I loved his um, his banter and his, I guess, friendship with Midoriya throughout the film because Midoriya, as we all know, is very straight-laced. And Rhodey is a fucking thief, so <laughs> they had very different viewpoints on things. But Rhodey's one of those characters who is not a bad person. He was just forced to stray off the the correct path, and he's doing the best that he can with what he's been with the cards that he's been dealt. And I think that having his more realistic viewpoint on the world, um, alongside Midoriya's idealistic viewpoint on the world, was really interesting to watch. And also, he's not doing these um, these d- discreetly illegal things just because he has a cynical view of the world. Um, it's also, again, because of the situation that he was placed in with his father, abandoning him. But like you get instances of him interacting with his siblings that he's had to take care of as well. Um, so that was a nice point of, of character, uh, nice point of... I guess exposition to add to his backstory is like yeah, he him caring so much for his siblings because they're the only thing that's driving him forward at this point. 
Yeah, his uh, siblings were cute. I thought they were his kids at first. That's what I thought as well. <laughs> but yeah, his, his uh, siblings were cute, although we didn't really get much about them. And I, they're still waiting for dinner. They're still waiting for dinner. Because <laughs> <laughs> he hasn't come home he hasn't come home yet. I like their names. Is it Roro and Lala? Yeah. Those were cute. Roro, Lala, and Rody. <laughs> very clever, very uh unique names there. <laughs> it's kinda like um Filipino nicknames. They always take one syllable and double it. Like oh, Roro, yeah. Lala. <laughs> Although they're they're from Otheon, which I assume is based on like Mediterranean cities or like Italy. I would want to say Italy because Humorize's uh secret base looked so much like a like a cathedral, almost like like the Vatican. And then you have uh Flecturn in these almost papal like robes. Mm-hmm. Which I think that was just meant to be I felt like it was a commentary on, you know, like fanatic cults. Um and maybe that's what Humorize was based on. Um, especially because, and I'm kind of getting ahead of myself, but it was really odd, but intriguing when we found out that some of the members of Humorize were actually quirk users. And I think it, the, the reasoning is that they were meant to kind of repent for their sins to, again, keep this religious tone to Humorize, um, by them joining this anti-quirk group and, and using their powers against against the the quirk society to the point of you know sacrificing their lives for the cause, right? Just like with uh, the the quirk bow user, uh, who was ba- really fucking cool, by the way. I loved. I figured her. you'd love. She her. was awesome. I mean, very much got like I'm sure like Robin Hood vibes, but mm-hmm. to me, I got Mad Link vibes from her from Zelda, um, and I fucking love archery. Yeah. So her quirk was so cool to me. Although I don't even know, did she have a name? It was Barros. Um, oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> like it's, it was mentioned probably like once or twice in the movie, because uh, I think, yeah, it's her hand that is able to um, transform into an arrow or not an arrow, a bow. Yeah. Um, the book again, the booklet mentions that she's not able to manifest arrows on her own, but just the bow in hand. Um, but yeah, I just thought it was so fascinating that you have quirk users within the humorized. Again, I call it a cult. Um, just because it, it kind of reflects on, you know, real life cults and how much they can brainwash their their own members and manipulate them into, like, thinking of themselves as as lower people in itself. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about Flecht. Um, well, it's kind of actually going to be hard to talk about him when we're thinking about the first section of the movie because he had like little to no development until the, the climactic end, yeah. fight where he reveals the reason why he's doing any of this. He's just some blue dude throughout the whole movie who's the leader of this cult. And we have no fucking idea like who he is, why he's there, what his quirk is, why is he blue, like what is up with this dude? I don't know. So <laughs> the only reason <laughs> He became a villain is because no one would touch him. No one wanted to give the guy a fucking hug, or at least what they tried to, but then they would get hugged back. I don't know. Yeah, his his quirk logic is kind of weird. Well, you know what? Let's just save our talk about Flecht for the second half, where he actually does kind of, I don't know, make more of an impact. Mm -hmm. Well, thinking um, a little bit more about this first section, I found the road trip part between Midoriya and Rhodey to be so weird. It didn't feel, I mean, in general, the whole movie felt a little bit 
less like a My Hero product. But I think this road trip part was probably the most anti or non My Hero feeling thing I've ever come across. It just felt so out of place to me. And I thought that we were watching, I don't know, like any other anime movie. Like a slice slice of of life. life. Yeah, Yeah. the fucking slice of life anime movie. Not a My Hero Academia movie. I just, I didn't care for it at all. I think it was fine. It got the point across that, yes, they go on this mini road trip um, and get to know each other throughout all of that. But they're already on the run for the majority of the movie. I could have already gotten that sense that they were developing a friendship through these experiences together without having to have witnessed this road trip montage. Yeah, I think what made it even more odd is that they added um, music during that montage. Yeah, I don't know, man. The, the song they use is called Flowers, and it's by Asian Kung Fu Generation. They did both um, songs for this movie, um, Flowers and, and this part, and then I think the ending song, um, which is called Empathy. Um, but... Yeah, stylistically, it didn't fit in with any of the rest of this movie. And I think they could have just cut the montage out and just went into the scene where, like, Midoriya, um, he talks to, right? He talks to, no, sorry, where Rhodey talks to Midoriya about his father or, and, like, his his family situation. Is that when they're in the cave? Yeah. Yeah, I think, I agree. I think they could have just moved us right into that and that would have been that that cave scene alone was enough to show us that yes Rudy is you know a a good person at heart and he's just having trouble connecting with Midoriya because he has been you know betrayed by the world so many times and I don't know like that that would have been enough it would have been fine yeah honestly I was about to fall asleep during the road trip scene one of our friends did fall asleep (laughs) (laughs) Aaron fell asleep during the road trip scene <laughs> Too much talking for Aaron. <laughs> um, shout out to Aaron from <laughs> for under falling the bun, asleep. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, our friend Aaron from Under the Bun. For anyone who tuned into our Code Geass review series, he was a guest um, during those episodes. Yes, he fell asleep <laughs> during the road trip part of this movie, and I kind of don't blame him. Yeah, me neither. <laughs> I also just really missed Bakugo and Todoroki for the first section of this movie. I just missed them. I'm like, where are the other two of the main three? Where are they? I want more, please. I felt like they were just underused for, say, for the climax for the entirety of the movie. And even just dialogue-wise, they kind of felt, I would say like Bakugo more so, but they kind of felt subdued. Like, I don't know. Usually Bakugo is really, the writing for Bakugo is really on point because he adds this like brash kind of humor uh, to the story but this one he kind of felt flat yeah i have to agree and not even just because i'm a big bakugo fan because i love my male sundays um i i felt like one of the highlights of season five for my hero was the comedic elements that both bakugo and todoroki brought to the show unexpectedly because it i mean bakugo yes he's always kind of been like that but even todoroki suddenly became so fucking funny in season five it was fantastic and we got none of that here Mm -hmm. um we also usually get very um insightful moments from bakugo because he usually acts like he's you know got tunnel vision but then he'll he'll show us or remind us that he actually can be pretty perceptive perceptive about things and i felt like we got that maybe once when he was helping find out the like looking into the data for the 
Yeah, those. Yeah, when, when they when they run the computer and yeah. the files and all that shit. Yeah, so that was probably the only time that and like the train scene right before that with Todoroki. Um, but Todoroki, we already know that he is very insightful, and even he didn't feel insightful in this movie. Mm-hmm. So yeah, there was just um, a lack of an underutilization of those two great characters who are supposed to be part of the Three Musketeers. <laughs> but let's talk about that because I do have a question. Since when is Bakugo so computer savvy? That was very much a Todoroki thing, I feel like, to to be that computer savvy. But I don't know. Like he he was smart enough to know where exactly the correct files were. And yes, it was super logical to search for the most recent file to find the video. Like when he said, just look up, just sort them by the most recent file and you'll probably find what we're looking for. Yeah, that's actually really smart. That's very logical. But then he went a step further and figured out the files for locating the... Um, I don't know, like the, the spot where they can put that disarming chip in. I don't know what it was. Yeah. Um, he found that so fucking fast in what they said was a computer or computer uh, chip with hundreds of files, hundreds of folders. Like, mm-hmm. How did you find that one so fucking fast? You know, I think he he could have had the the math calculations over yeah. his head, <laughs> like um, Zach Galifianakis' character in The Hangover. Uh, but yeah, that... I had the same question too. Like, how was Bakugo, or how were he and Rhodey able to just figure out so quickly where the humorized base was? And this just, again, leads me into thinking that this movie was a rush job. They just needed something to quickly get them from the middle of the story to the conclusion of the story. And so they just threw in that, you know, Bakugo has these IT hacking skills. And... Oh my God. It was so, it's so <laughs> out of character for him. Like mm-hmm. he is a very smart character, but only when it comes to anything hero related and fighting related, like his combat skills um, and his, his perception of, you know, heroes and villains, that's where he shines. Todoroki, I felt like would have made more sense to be the, the, you know, the ultra hacker in this this movie, but yeah. I don't know, Bakugo was very, very, very much an odd choice. Um, in that same scene, we get the reveal that sadly Rhodey's dad sacrificed his life to create the disarming key. But to me, that had little emotional impact because I barely know his dad and more so I barely know Rhodey. So I just felt like, oh, that sucks. And then I moved on with my life. I think that's just... Um because of the runtime of the movie just being so low. Because uh, you can, I know there are plenty of other movies where you can see a character's emotional arc from beginning to end and you can empathize with them. But because this is only, again, I think an hour, 20 minutes, we only have so much time to really connect with Rhodey, um, to really care about his backstory. I think if they give us more about his innocent, you know, younger siblings, and more about his connection with his dad. Um, maybe I would have felt more of that emotional impact. But we just had the one quick conversation between Rhodey and Midoriya in the cave where he mentioned that his dad suddenly disappeared. And that was it. So that, that's not enough for me to feel for Rhodey in this moment. I mean, yes, I'm human. I can I can feel sad for him, um, for this character in this moment. But really, in the grand scheme of things, I was like, well, okay, let's let's move on. And a little more on this idea of lazy writing, Midoriya being accused of mass murder was very clearly a plot device that just got swept under the rug once the story progressed. Like, to me, that's a big fucking deal. And they barely closed that loop. Like, when they they show that that 
police chief was part of the human rights um, organization and he got arrested and all that stuff. But like, that's all we got. Like, it's kind of like, oh, by the way, this is all cleaned up now. That's such a big fucking deal. And I actually thought that it was a really cool concept for this movie, Midoriya um, kind of being on the run. But then that became so unimportant that I was like, oh, well, that's not the direction they're heading at all. Yeah, the, the last consequential instance you get of that is when Barros is chasing him and Rhodey on that helicopter um, on the, I think they were like on the border of Otheon and Crate, uh, which by the way, Crate is also a Star Wars reference um, in, the self, in itself because um, my hero uses Star Wars planets and locations as names for their locations. Crate is from The Last Jedi, the planet at the very end of that movie. Um, so that's a reference. But didn't the sub spell it K-L-A-Y-D? Yes, but I think it's because of Japanese pronunciation. Because um, I, I was reading a, one of the synopses online, and it said create K-R-A-Y-T. I wonder if they did that to avoid copyright. Probably. Like the localizations for a lot of the stand names in JoJo, they can't use those names. Yeah, I, I can see that as well. Um, but yeah, I think that was the scene where it kind of just resolved, you know, Midoriya or absolved Midoriya of his, his crime. Although it, again, it was very loosely tied up just because Bakugo and Todoroki came to his rescue. Um, and then this was the other shot um, where earlier it was the Midoriya chasing um, Rodi throughout the city. This was the other shot of the movie where it's um, Bakugo and Todoroki saving Midoriya and Rodi where it it's, it almost feels like a one take, almost like a like a Marvel movie, right? Where you have uh, a battle sequence, especially in like the Avengers, where it focuses on one character and then seamlessly transitions to what another character is doing. I think that's what they're trying to emulate here. But again, it just really the um, animation just looked really rough. Yeah, I agree. Again, I I think it's awesome that they want to take it um, in that direction and try something that seems newer in the realm of anime by using those camera shots as you describe them. But it was dampened by the fact that it just looked so poor in terms of animation quality. And I feel like we've seen these kinds of sequences in the show itself, too. Um, It just looks a lot more cleaned up. One that comes to mind is... um, Midoriya's fight with Overhaul in season four, like just how beautifully animated that was. Or even in the last movie with Midoriya teaming up with Bakugo um, against Nine, like you have the, the the slow ballad over playing over the, them working together against Nine. But this, it felt like I was watching an old school 80s animation, kind of like um, I think South Park... If you remember the cat pee episode and then yeah. Kenny goes into his dream <laughs> sequence, that kind of animation style, which was based, I think it was parodying a Canadian animated film called Heavy Metal. So if any of you out there listening, look that up and see the animation style there. That's what this um, rescue sequence reminded me of. Um, it just felt so visually different from anything that we had seen at this point in the movie so far. So let's move into the second section of the movie, which would basically be when the main three arrive at Flex location, um, the climax, all the way through to the end of the movie. I 
right off the bat, want to say that poor Todoroki got gypped on that that major fight scene. Bakugo and Midoriya got way more screen time during yeah. that fight scene than Todoroki did. And I'm like, this sucks for Todoroki fans. It's great for me and my fellow Bakugo fans, but it was no fun for the Todoroki fans. And I am a huge Todoroki fan. You are. So, I'm so sorry for you. Yeah, I <laughs> felt really shafted. It was, he, it was just... They wanted him to drown so that they could focus on Bakugo and Midoriya more. <laughs> and Bakugo got plenty of screen time in the second movie, so why not give Todoroki more of a chance to shine in this movie? And I mean, he barely got some screen time during the Endeavor internship arc during season five, so this would have been a really cool moment to show us using his fire parts of his quirk more now that he's working with his dad. Which he does end up using flash fire fist right he does, which yeah. is a, a signature move from endeavor yeah right which i thought was that was great for his own character development for him being more in tune with with his fa- the powers that his father passed on but it comes after like bakugo has this insane fight scene with yeah. these like twin blade villains or whatever which by the way so the fight scenes were again some of the strongest parts of this movie. I loved these, even though some of them felt a little bit dragged out, a little bit long. The climax in general felt a little bit long. I loved watching these fight scenes, um, especially Bakugos, because he had some really cool moves that he pulled out of his ass. Mm-hmm. And he was up against an opponent that I think really pushed him, really challenged him, because oftentimes he can just wipe the floor with any villain he comes across. And even though it felt like he was up against the ropes from majority of the latter half of his fight against these twins like it still didn't crush his spirit um and i would say that's a more redeeming quality of baku is that he he just doesn't know when to fucking give up he really enjoys strength he responds Mm -hmm. well to other characters that have um a lot of strength or, or showcase a lot of strength and this was very much that moment where he was enjoying getting the shit beat out of him because yeah. it was a response to someone else with a lot of strength. But yeah, I thought fight scenes were great. Um, Todoroki definitely needed more with whatever the fucking villain was that he was fighting. That one kind of looked like the weird tree villain from Jujutsu Kaisen. Yeah, I got the same vibes. But I'm looking at um, again the companion booklet. So... The twins that Bakugo faced, they were called the Serpenters. Um, their names are Enna and Dio. Oh, Dio. Dio <laughs> was in this movie. Yeah. Jojo reference, I guess. Um, and then the monster that Todoroki faced, again, the Jujutsu Kaisen knockoff, was called the Leviathan. Yeah, I didn't know any of it. If they, no, yeah, if they, they mentioned barely, that in yeah. the movie, that I totally missed no, it. No, <laughs> I don't think they mentioned their names at all. Yeah, it's not important anyway. Midoriya's fight, though, I felt kind of dragged on a bit um the whole climax went far too long yeah and like why did it take midoriya so long to think oh let me just shoot all of the laser cannons with um what is it air force yeah is that his little finger shot thing Mm -hmm. like why did it take him so long to think of that it wasn't until roadie got into the room that he was like oh shit maybe i should just break these laser cannons so they don't keep stabbing me all over my body (laughs) i'm like he's so much smarter than that midoriya is very clever i think it's because midoriya doesn't care if he gets hurt but once roadie stepped into the room like that's another um, person that he has to protect but also right. he can't reach his goal of the back room to put the the chip in the computer if he's getting shot to death with these lasers like i think 
a smart hero would think I need to remove the threat. I need to remove this obstacle in order to progress towards my goal. And right now it's these laser cannons. I just thought he was just so intensely focused on Flecht um, that he didn't provide any regard to the lasers. Which is like that. That's probably the case. But that's weird to me because Midoriya is very, very clever when it comes to fighting. He mm-hmm. he's not like Bakugo in the sense where Bakugo could just like innately, um, you know, he, he can avoid any attack just from his his own instinct. Um, Midoriya thinks through things very intently um, based on what he's observing with his opponent. And that just wasn't the case here. He also never found a clever way to destroy Flight. He just punched the shit out of him until it just so happened yeah. it wore him out. That was the one major thing I had a problem with in this like climactic boss fight is Midoriya just defeats Flecht by sheer force and by not giving up. Like- Even though that could have been completely <laughs> fruitless and he could have died. Right. It was a fluke, honestly. It was a fluke that he beat Flecht. And... I know we talked about this with our friends saying that it's Fleck's weakness is that he, with his quirk, um, he didn't really develop it more to his, to be more of a positive thing for himself. And that's what his failing was. Whereas Midoriya didn't, doesn't give up like Fleck did. Um, because like I said earlier, he was emboldened by knowing the efforts of his friends around the world and knowing that he has to stop this threat. And because Midoriya doesn't have give up vocabulary um, in his blood, that's what caused him to to go all out on Flecht. And Flecht tried to stop him as much as he could and really had this OP quirk. But in the end, just he couldn't take it anymore. Which I'm like, okay, that explanation makes sense. But I just thought it would be better if there was a more... I guess, logical reason for why Midoriya was able to beat him. Yeah, and we didn't get that. We, it was just sheer luck that he was able to defeat Flecht or stop him anyway. Although he has been, he, I think this whole movie, he's been more in tune with Black Whip. Um, yeah, he's fucking running around like Spider-Man. Yeah, <laughs> um, which felt like homage to Spider-Man with those swinging sequences, but... That could have been a way for him to, like, find a way to stop Flectus with his use of Black Whip. I'm trying to remember, in the latter half of Season 5, is Midoriya that good with Black Whip by the end of the season? Because I felt Mm. like he said he was still learning about it, but here it's like he was a master of Black Whip. Yeah, I was questioning that, too. I can't remember exactly if he had mastered Black Whip by the end of Season 5, but... I feel like he hadn't. Something something is telling me, my gut is telling me that he said to somebody that, oh, I'm still I'm still trying to get a hold on Black Whip. But yeah, he looked like he was just fine with that new quirk. Yeah, I don't know. I guess you could call it a retcon in this movie, which <laughs> just to go along that point, as emotional and as compelling as this climax and ending was, like there are points where you think Midoriya is not going to survive this, but we all know they survive at the end <laughs> because they're there in season five, <laughs> right? Um, so yeah, like I, as much as this this climax was great, um, that there's still that thought hanging over my head is that this is just a blip in the entire canon of my hero that 
I can't really take this threat or this movie that seriously. I thought um, to this, the topic of not taking something seriously, I thought that the whole, how do you describe it? The whole part with the punching was weird. It definitely <laughs> yes. kind of broke my immersion during the, the climax of the climax where Midori was about to defeat Flecht because suddenly he becomes Star Platinum and does like an Ora Ora punch. But there's that one moment where he's like crouched and he just starts slowly punching while he's like squatting. And then there's three of him. And I'm like, what am I watching right now? That part mm-hmm. in particular was very weird to me and somewhat cringy. And I was like, oh, I don't know anymore. It felt very video gamey. Like, yeah. <laughs> like you like you just like hit a, a final smash or something. And yeah. that's his ultimate move. Like this is the sequence that plays when Midoriya activates his final smash in Smash Brothers. <laughs> <laughs> and then it, it just looked like he was in Super Saiyan mode, just like in um, Heroes Rising. That was cool, though. I did appreciate that they brought back that Super Saiyan thing again. Um, so that that made the second movie feel a little more canon. <laughs> <laughs> I guess, yeah. Um, and I already talked about him using the United States of World Smash as his final move against... Um, and that would have been great um, in terms of character development because I think that's a point where like Midoriya's finally come to terms with his one for all power but again this isn't really canon so and you know this won't be addressed in the show and we'll find another instance where Midoriya actually does come to terms with like having to wield one for all and learning how to responsibly handle all the powers that come with it um but the one thing that I, other thing that I did like about this climax is I thought it was the right choice for Midoriya not to be the one to disarm the bombs. Um, and it was more so Rhodey's time to shine and more so a moment for him to kind of reconcile with the sins of his father um, and to kind of, I guess, redeem himself after being like this sort of like not like entirely shady character um as a result of his father banning him but just morally questionable yeah to him actually doing something positive for the change and in this case it's him saving the world from destruction like three seconds before the time or the bomb goes off yeah i like that as well i thought that was a great way to kind of wrap up roadie as a character because i doubt we'll see him again after this movie they may mention him maybe in the show, but I think that was a fantastic way to round out his story. Um, and I think for for him to be able to take this thing that his father created, because his father was kidnapped essentially and like forced to work in Humorize's favor. Um, so he of course sacrificed his life to make this disarming key and Rhodey of all people is the one who activates that key and saves the world is, it was great. I liked it a lot. And I thought it would have served the film better if we had seen Rhodey pass away from his triumphant effort in the end. It probably you wanted Rhodey to die? No, I'm <laughs> saying it would have provided just more emotional weight. Um, I thought he was going to die. I thought that's, that's what no, they were yeah, No, that's what they were implying because you see Pino fading away from existence at some point, right? Yeah. And then Midoriya goes into the room to go stop the bomb and then you see Pino makes it all the way to the little slot with the to stop the... Uh, time bomb 
Um, and then you find out Rhodey's all right, which was great. But I I just thought emotionally it would have, I thought it would have been better for Midoriya too, um, for him to kind of take that as a, another motivation in his journey. Um, knowing that uh, there was someone he met along the way who sacrificed his own life for a greater cause. And then that just again, motivates him more to become the number one hero. Granted, again, this movie's not canon, so you'll never really see that um, in the show. But like, I, not to say like this wasn't a great moment because you know I, I felt I welled up a bit when like Rhodey finally did it and saved the heroes. And I remember hearing on the side there was like a a grown man with I think his partner, um, and he was just like sniffling every now and then too. <laughs> so <laughs> it's okay to cry at these kinds of moments. <laughs> no, I I agree. I think um, I'm very happy. Rhodey survived. I think it would have also been acceptable if he didn't survive just because of the way the story was playing out. I did feel a little bit baited again when we thought he was going to die and they made it Mm -hmm. very much feel like he was going to die and then he was totally fine. Not only that, but how did Bakugo, Midoriya, and Rhodey not die from bleeding out? There's just no way they have that much blood in their bodies. I mean, think about how many times Midoriya got stabbed with those lasers to the point where he physically... Could he was physically incapable of getting up off the ground when Rhodey finally a- arrived on the scene? Granted, maybe you could chalk it up to second wind as to how he could get up and, and defeat Fleck in the end, but I just I was so confused by all of that. There's no way these motherfuckers are gonna be the same after what they've been through. Well, um, they got a health pickup, um, <laughs> in their in their low, they've got this thing called plot armor, yeah, that, it's very yes, effective. That's you, and also they have season five (laughs) well my my only other note on the i guess the second half or the second section of this movie but really the main plot of the movie is this whole idea of humorize um wanting to protect the quirkless it's weird to me that midoriya didn't even acknowledge or really talk about how he used to be quirkless we do get a quick flashback of when he met all might and all that stuff um but there wasn't a true acknowledgement of midoriya's quirklessness by midoriya himself i think it would have been very powerful for the story if midoriya said to Rhodey or to somebody i actually was quirkless for many years until he could just lie and say my quirk manifested itself when i was a teenager because i think I think in the lore, um, most people discover their quirks by like age five or six or something like that, right? Yeah. When they're pretty young. But I think that would have been a fantastic way to tie in Midoriya's story to what Humorize was doing and to make Humorize's whole deal feel a little more important to my hero. Because um, it just, it was weird to me. Like, this is a great opportunity for us to be reminded that Midoriya started off quirkless and there was no talk of that. No, no acknowledgement of that by Midoriya himself. So I'm trying to piece this together. Like, wh- uh, what I guess significance would that have brought up with um, Flecked if Midoriya talked about him being quirkless? I don't think it's Flecked himself. I just think it's this whole idea of humorize wanting to protect the quirkless, and then Midoriya being like, "Well, I actually used to be quirkless, and I don't feel like I need to be or." You know, I back then I wouldn't have felt like I needed to be protected, or I didn't have any animosity towards people with quirks. I was just quirkless uh, for a long time until it manifested itself on its own. You know, not revealing that he ate All Might's fucking hair or anything like that. <laughs> but I think it would have just tied in more neatly to the main My Hero story versus 
Midoriya just not even thinking about the fact that he used to be one of these quirkless people people that they're trying to protect. Okay. Because the way I looked at it, um, I know that the movie made brief mention of the, what is it called? The quirk doomsday theory um, at the beginning. And it was more so that they wanted to address the impending threat of like quirk society getting so out of hand that you have these out of control quirks that would eventually cause the destruction of society, which I think it's, it's something that's also mentioned more um, in the main series with the uh, League of Villains, the Metal Liberation Front. But yeah, I think it's, that's just stemmed from Flecht himself just having a really shitty quirk that he couldn't deal with um, more than him wanting to actually stop stop like quirk people quirk people <laughs> I no term. i agree i think it it just shows that fleck didn't really truly care about people who were quirkless he was just pissed he got born with a shitty quirk <laughs> like he's just salty that's all that it is and I mean, you don't see, uh, what's his face, Rody getting all pissed off that he's got Pino. But how could you? Pino's really cute. I like Pino. Yeah. So I guess the w- way that this movie looks at that, again, that quirk doomsday theory, um, it's another perspective separate from the show. But I always think back to, again, the consequentiality of this whole movie, which, again, is that it it doesn't even hold a candle to the threat of what is now the Paranormal Liberation Front. Uh, Just some other quick notes here. Um, There's a little Easter egg, if you notice, um, during the road trip sequence, which is hard to catch, especially if you almost fell asleep like I did, um, (laughs) is that the van that Rhodey ends up finding for him in Midoriya, I think it's supposed to be modeled off of like the old school Volkswagen hippie vans. Yeah. Um, but instead of using the Volkswagen logo for copyright reasons and trademark reasons, I'm sure, they actually used the logo for uh, Studio Bones. Oh, that's what that was. Okay, yeah. that's cool. It, which it looks like a... I think it's meant to be like part of the letter B. Um, it kind of looks like a K. Um, when you see the... The Volkswagen logo it's trying to um, it's trying to mimic. Uh, but I thought that was a, a clever use of their logo and kind of a reminder to the audience that they were the ones who worked on this movie and on the show. Um, and I'd also just like to call out the notable Seiyu, uh, the voice actors for the two of the characters at least, um, Kazuya Nakai, um, who played Flecturn. Um he was Mugen in the Japanese dub of Samurai Champloo. And he was also in Gintama. Yeah, isn't he Hijikata? Yeah. I The second he started talking, I was like, that's fucking Hijikata. Also, he was Mugen and Oh, we, we never watched no, Samurai yeah. Champloo subbed. So. Yeah, that was one of the few shows that we actually watched dubbed because Steve Blum played Mugen and he did a fantastic and job. And he's a dub god. Yes. Um, and the other one is Maria Ise. Uh who played Barros, um, the the Robin Hood female girl? Um, she yeah, she played Barros, and you might know her as Kilo and Hunter Hunter, Rain Promise Neverland, and I believe she's going to be 
Foo Fighters in the upcoming Stone Ocean uh, Part 6 for, for JoJo. So just wanted to note both of them. Wait, wasn't she also Kilua? Did you say that? I did say Kilua. Oh, sorry. I was looking at her picture while you were saying that. Yeah, she's, <laughs> she's awesome. She's also really pretty. Every time I see her in like an interview or something, I'm like, she's gorgeous. And the other thing with Barrows really quick is I, I put a note, um, whatever happened to her, but I forgot that she kind of just and heroed. Yeah, she jumped out of the fucking helicopter. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think it's just because like she, she had gotten herself into a corner since um, Baku and Todoroki rescued her. But I didn't realize that until we talked about it after the movie. Um, which that was a really abrupt ending for Barrows. I thought she was very underutilized. She felt throwaway. Like once she and here, I was like, okay, so she was just a throwaway character. I would have yeah. loved to see more of her. Or like even like a redemption arc for her. Yeah. But yeah, you know, she was just like, fuck this. <laughs> and then just and hero. But oh well. And so that brings us to our final thoughts for My Hero Academia World Heroes Mission. So how many roadie trips out of 10 would you give this movie? All right. So this was tough for me because I was on the border of two scores. Um, and so I decided to go back to the other, and I'm pulling them up here, the other two My Hero movies and take a look at what I gave those. So for the first movie, um, Two Heroes, I gave that one a seven. And then for the second movie, Heroes Rising, I gave that one a nine. Um, and so thinking comparatively here, I think I have to land on a 6.5 for this movie. Because if I felt that the first movie was a seven, this one is certainly not at the same level as the first movie. But it's not far off from the first movie either. So I thought a 6.5 was an appropriate score. Um I'm sure to some people that sounds like a terrible score. It's not a terrible score. It just means that this movie was fine. It was fine. Um, it was pretty good, um, but it wasn't like a solid good. It wasn't great or anything like that. So I gave it a 6.5 because it just didn't feel like a My Hero movie. Um, it just took some risks that, again, I think is is great that they took the risk, but it didn't pan out for them at the very end of things. And it also just kind of reminds me of what we've mentioned in our reviews of My Hero Season 5, that we just want My Hero to be good again. Like, we wanted to give us those same vibes that it gave us during Seasons 1 through 3. And things started to taper off during Season 4 and even more so in Season 5. And I feel like this third movie is continuing that downward taper from Season 5. I just want my my hero to be good again, and it's just not quite getting there. Um, and I did feel overall somewhat disappointed with this movie, so I can't give it anything higher than a 6.5. But what about you? Yeah, I, I have a similar score. I would give this 7 roadie trips out of 10. I think this movie would have been better if it were the second in this movie trilogy, if if this indeed is the last My Hero movie to come out and not the capstone of this trilogy. Because I'm pretty sure uh, Heroes Rising, the second movie, canonically takes place later than this one during the Metal Liberation arc. Oh, does it really? I know it was kind of a time skip, but I didn't realize that it's even further beyond Go I'm... Beyond Plus Ultra <laughs> than <laughs> the third movie. That's weird. Yeah, I, I definitely remember some synopsis mentioning the Metal Liberation arc. Um 
as being the timeline for Heroes Rising. Because at that, I remember thinking, what the hell's the Metal Liberation arc back when we saw the movie? But now it makes sense. Um, so chronologically, I think Heroes Rising would have ended up happening much later than World Heroes Mission. But doesn't that pose a problem? Sorry, I'm just thinking through this because Midoriya doesn't use Black Whip. He doesn't even acknowledge Black Whip. I mean, yeah there's, yeah, there's that. But I, th- I meant like sequentially because there was so much finality to Heroes Rising with their climax that I think that would have served as a better ending to this quote-unquote movie trilogy rather than this be the ending. Okay, I see what you mean. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think the the plot regarding Humorize and what their intentions are were, were interesting, but it's just a threat that I can't take seriously given the nature of the true threat in the series, which is now, again, the PLF. Um, because if Humorize really were this credible global threat, then why has the series given so much attention to the League of Villains or, again, the Paranormal Liberation Front? And like I said before, it's probably just one facet of a threat that seeks to kind of challenge this Quark Doomsday theory that's hanging over everybody's heads. But the stakes just don't seem that plausible when you, again, consider the canon of the series itself. I was also hoping for more of a collaboration between again the, the big three of 1a with doria bakugo and todoroki but we barely got it and they ended up just getting isolated fight scenes in the end and like i said before I, it would have just been cool to see the three of them team up against fleck turn um to kind of continue with this climax team up of the movies but I think it was just rightful, quote-unquote, character development for Midoriya to just go it alone for this, quote-unquote, final movie. Um, All in all, I think this movie just felt more like a cash grab than to be of any real substance. And guess what? It worked because we we ended up watching it and they took our money anyway. But I think just at the base of things, um, I agree with you, I think... They need to make my hero amazing again. But this was just a, air quote, fun movie. And maybe that's just all it needs to be for my hero fans. Um, although it just just makes us want a little bit more. And unlike me, just save your canon concerns for the actual series. Um, and just take this movie for what it is. Well, there you have it. I do want to mention... That um, So we saw this movie with uh, our group of friends that we've mentioned before that we call ConFam. Um, and so ConFam spent the rest of the evening after the movie having a conversation, uh, theorizing the limitations of Flex Quirk and who an anime could kill him. And I think it was actually a pretty interesting conversation. Like there, you could actually do a lot with Flex <laughs> if he wasn't a throwaway villain in this um, mediocre My Hero movie. Um, Fleck mentions in the movie that he tried to kill himself because, you know, he was very depressed. And I don't know, like maybe he, if he tried to stab himself, it would just reflect out. Like basically he couldn't kill himself because any damage he did to himself would just reflect back out. So we were all thinking like, okay, if he tried to drown himself, would he then drown the water around him instead? <laughs> or maybe he would just part the waters like Moses. Like Moses. Um, and then we were all thinking, like, what if Kirby swallowed him? What would happen then? <laughs> um, or if he got launched into space, would 
he then launched space back out to the earth. <laughs> I would just think like any of those, he, he he just creates a bubble around him that just prevents him from. It's like infinite damage from space. So those are just like this infinitely growing like orb around him of reflecting that damage from space. And then his, I was gonna say is is if Kirby swallows him. Does he just become Kirby? <laughs> <laughs> Does he then swallow Kirby instead? Yeah. Um, and then one of them was like, what if he gets hit with the hand from JoJo Part 4? Does he then erase the hand instead? <laughs> and then I was like, okay, if he got hit by Saitama's one punch, would Saitama die instead? <laughs> yeah, because he gets hit by the one punch. Yeah. And then I was like, okay, so is the only way to kill him to write his name in the death note? But then we were like, oh, well, then it reflects back on the death note and kills the death note itself. <laughs> <laughs> Just the journal. It's the journal not dies. The, not the user, like the, the writer. <laughs> so, yeah, I thought it was a really fun conversation. And just figuring out how other anime protagonists or whatever how, how their powers would damage or not damage Fleck and how those powers would then reflect back off of Fleck. <laughs> it was a very interesting conversation um, but it, it got the wheels turning and who knows maybe someone else out there has another theory about an anime character trying to kill Fleck and what would happen with their powers. I'm sure it would be more interesting than the whole movie itself. <laughs> So there you have it, our final thoughts on My Hero Academia, World Heroes Mission, again, hot off the presses just two days after the movie premiered here in the U.S. Um, thank you for joining us. Hopefully uh, we didn't knock the movie too hard. We, we tried our best to mention the positives that we had for this movie, although they were slightly less than the negatives present in this movie. Yeah, again, just go into the movie without any high expectations and and just have fun as much fun as you can have yes it's enjoyable to say the least but thank you so much for listening we really appreciate you guys um always tuning in every monday joining us every week to hear us talk about anime and anime related topics we really really appreciate you guys and we hope to see you next week and this wraps up episode 59 of Strictly Anime. If you enjoy the podcast and would like to support the show, then head over to patreon.com slash strictly series and subscribe on your favorite podcast streaming service so you can be notified when new episodes premiere every Monday. Follow us on Instagram at the Strictly Series and on Twitter at Strictly Series and connect with us there or on our website, thestrictlyseries.com to share your thoughts on the anime we review. You'll also find more info on Strictly Jojo, our other podcast dedicated to Jojo's Bizarre Adventure. Thank you so much for listening. And as always, stay safe, stay healthy, stay weeb. Maybe that's what Humorize was based on, um, especially because, and I'm kind of getting ahead of myself, but. <laughs> Sorry to interrupt. <laughs> that one's going in the bloopers. <laughs> Yeesh.